Guys, thank you so much for being here. If you're brand new, welcome. We're so thankful that you're here. You've come at a great time. Uh, we started a brand new series this last week, and it will carry us all the way up until Easter Sunday, as Caleb had already mentioned. Uh, it's an incredible opportunity to, uh, to really not even, tr- you don't have to even try all that hard. You just kind of offer, and it's incredible how God kind of does what he wants to do um, in some incredible ways. Last week, we kicked off this Final Words of Jesus series, um, and, uh, and, and really, it's interesting as you begin to look at the final words uh, of Jesus, how significant and how powerful they are, because as you walk through them, uh, they really encompass all of Jesus' ministry, for the most part. Uh, for those that don't know, Jesus was on a cross Um, And he was on there for six hours, and during that six-hour period, he made seven uh, very powerful statements, seven very powerful statements that ultimately, like I said, if you really pull them apart and you begin to look at them as we will through this final words of Jesus series, you're going to understand how significant they were, not just then, but even for today. Uh, The final words of Jesus, last week we talked about the very first statement, Father, forgive them. And then this week we are rolling into our very second statement. But the final words of anyone's life are very significant. Sometimes they offer, like I said last week, sometimes they offer regret. Sometimes they offer, uh, they they make a statement of love or affection towards that that final person. But um, I actually did a little bit more research here uh, today, and you could even Google. I, I looked up bedside, like deathbed confessions. Um, And uh, that's really interesting. So if you want an interesting read, you can just Google that or whatever. Uh, But there's a number of different deathbed confessions uh, that uh, that I thought I'd kind of kick off with. Just so you understand, like sometimes, I mean, it's a broad spectrum of where people's hearts and thoughts normally drift to when they are in their final moments. This first one I found, I thought was kind of funny. It says, a great aunt of mine says that when her husband was on his deathbed, he confessed that he had actually shrunk two of her very favorite and expensive sweaters by drying them many years earlier. He had told her that they were stolen and she'd been looking for them ever since. So he just needed to get that off his chest, I guess, before. And, and it says that they had a good laugh before his, his final moments. But uh, another one was uh, a little bit more serious. Is uh, I didn't see it, but my aunt watched her elderly mother fall down the stairs and confess just before she died, I'm not your mother. So, yeah, that's very, yeah, absolutely. That's, it's like a TV show somewhere. It's crazy. Um, another one, uh, just even serious as well. My mom had a patient who was terminal and confessed to killing his twin brother. Nathan, if you're dialing up, this is not my plans. I'm a twin, just in case you don't know that. Um, but confessed to killing his twin brother in Vietnam so he could blame the death on the war and then steal his identity, and then return to the U.S. to be with his brother's wife. So, okay, yeah, this is, this is like a movie. Um, Lifetime's asking for these. Um, and then finally, the last one that I'll share with you is, um, my dad told me that when his grandfather was about to die, 
he finally told his family why he had this tattoo on his arm. He was in prison for a number of years for very heinous crimes. Now, it was always a mystery because he was a pastor at a church, and he never spoke about it, which is why I never speak about mine. Okay, all right. Just keep going there. Now, um, it's interesting at the final, the final words, the final days, it's, it's interesting where people's minds drift and their, their hearts and their affections are voiced and, and uh, expressed. In this Final Words of Jesus series this morning, we're going to look at two men that um, it wasn't a deathbed confessional, but it was a, a conversation these two men had with Jesus. And we mentioned it a little bit last week when we were reading the passage. And this week, we're going to look at a little bit uh, these two men and, and how significantly different their responses were to Jesus hanging on the cross right next to them. So if you have your Bibles, I want to begin by looking at Luke chapter 23 this morning, or your digital device, starting in verse 32. And, and it's just fascinating as we look at these this conversation that the, each of these men, how, because how, at the end of life, I, I would think that I want to get to something that's most important. Like I want to focus on something that's most important, something that can not just satisfy something, but, but genuinely meet something that maybe I've lacked my entire life. Like I want to get to that place. Like what is concrete? What is, I mean, because you're thinking that I've got maybe moments, maybe a, a couple days left, and then there's nothing but eternity in front of me. Like, that's where my mind would drift, and it's interesting how these two men fell on very two different platforms as we read this. But Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32, follow along with me on the screen if you don't have a copy this morning. This is what it says. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him, him being Jesus. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jumping over to verse 39. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and and us too, while you're at it. But the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God? I mean, even when you've been sentenced to die. See, we deserve to die for our crimes. But this man, he's done nothing. He hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Heavenly Father, I just want to invite you here. Jesus, we're, we're trying to talk about something that is beyond human comprehension sometimes. And it's only understood, truly understood when your spirit has free reign to move in the hearts and lives of those who do hear. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move among our hearts this morning. 
Would you move among those that are dialing up even online? God, wherever we are, whoever is within hearing distance, Lord Jesus, would you speak and we would listen. God, I pray right now that those that walked in with burdens or heavy weights on their heart this morning, I pray that you would lift those off and that you would transform us to being a different kind of person from when we first walked in. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you and praise you. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's a powerful statement. I love Luke's gospel in this particular case because Luke actually does a fantastic job. If you read the gospel of Luke from beginning to end, you're going to see an ongoing theme, a repetitive theme that sort of comes up, and it's Luke's specific attention to Jesus and the brokenness of this world. So, so throughout this book, you'll see this particular gospel, you'll see a huge emphasis of Jesus interacting with the prostitutes, interacting with the drunkards, interacting with those that are classified by the world as less than, men and women who, who had just a broken life, a broken world. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to any of us as we're navigating through this book, that the book actually ends with Jesus having an interaction with a thief. I mean, the, this, this is kind of how the, the book kind of comes to a conclusion between Jesus and the brokenness and the lostness and the criminal, the criminal of this world. But remember why Jesus came. Why did Jesus came? We, he tells us this in over and over through several gospels, through several books of the Bible. But in Luke 19, what does it say? It says, um, I came not to seek out and save the lost. That's why Jesus came. Do you realize that? Like Jesus was here not for the church folk. He wasn't. He wasn't here for the, the, just the, merely the religious or those that, uh, that prioritize their life and, or isolate their life to just one set of people. No, Jesus was around the broken, around the hurting, around the prostitutes, around the drunkards. He wanted to, be, uh, he wanted to walk among them. He wanted to be present in their, in their lives so that they understood just how valuable they still were despite their choices despite the path that they had walked, despite the lives that they had lived. And this was Jesus' mission. I want to seek and save the lost. So if you're here this morning, I want you to know Jesus has been after you your whole life. You get that? He has been out to, 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 to grab hold of your heart and you don't even know it. That's the beautiful thing about our Savior. He's constantly pursuing us. He's constantly chasing after us. But then there's these two criminals. Jesus is on the cross for, for uh, six hours and seven statements come from them and, and there's a criminal on his right and a criminal on his left and they're seeing all these things that are going on and yet one landed one way and the other landed another way. Their perspectives, their view of not just what happened but who Jesus is we're in direct opposite directions. 
Their views were completely different on so many ways. Now, there's not a lot of information in Scripture that tells us why the criminals were on the cross. When you study Roman law and first century Roman law, you'll discover that there's only a, there's only a select group of things that would actually demand the death penalty, especially death by crucifixion. There was just a couple of them. There was a couple, a couple of things that, that, uh, that would actually put you on the cross in this case. And one of them would be obviously murder. So if you murdered someone, um, you would probably get the death penalty. If you had an attempted murder, like a, maybe a slave trying to kill a master, if you attempted murder, that would also possibly cause the judgment of death to, to be laid on you. If you were an escaped slave, that as well would be punishable by death. If you deserted the army, if you went AWOL and you abandoned your post, that would also deserve death. But then one of the other ones would be manifest robbery. Now, there are two classifications of robbery in this day, in this, according to this law. First, there was hearsay. Um, I believe so-and-so stole this or they robbed me of this. That wouldn't necessarily demand the death penalty. Manifest robbery would be classified as someone that was caught in the act. So if someone was caught in the act of stealing something, that would be enough to put them to death, to put them on the cross. And we'll, we'll discover here shortly that in Matthew and in Mark, it identifies these two men on the left and the right as robbers, as Thieves. So more than likely, if this, was, if this was the charge against them, more than likely it was a manifest robbery. They were caught in the middle of stealing something significant from someone else. And finally, the death penalty was applied to them and they are hanging there with Jesus in this moment. Three different times, Luke uses a word to describe these men as those who do evil works. So these weren't good guys. Okay? They're not just robbers. These, are ev- these guys do evil works, according to Luke. They had maybe a long history of a lot of different things going on, and finally it culminated to this last thing that they participated in, and whatever it was, they got caught, and now they're paying the consequence. These are the two thieves on the cross. Now, here's, here's what, as I've studied this, and I think as we walk through this this morning, here's the, two thing, here's the question that you and I need to answer. There's a thief on the left, there's a thief on the right, and here's the question. Um, which thief are you? Which thief are you? Because there's two different responses to Jesus here in this moment. There's two different people that are looking at Jesus, seeing the same thing, experiencing the same thing, um, uh, understanding the, the message that's going out, all of the above, but yet it lands completely different. Now, some of you are like, Joel, by you even asking that question, you're assuming that I'm guilty of something. Welcome to humanity, okay? You've been alive for any amount of time. We are guilty. We don't bring something good to the table. We like to think so. But, and we like to think that we are somehow iner- inherently uh, sort of have some sort of good. You know, there's, if we give humanity enough time, they'll get it right. That never works out. <laughs> never works out. It always ends up bad. It always goes a direction they never anticipated. 
So let's look at these two thieves. The, these two thieves ultimately, Matthew 27 verse 44 tells us that they're robbers. It says, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. What does that mean? It means that, here's what's fascinating, both men actually jumped on the bandwagon with all the rest of the crowd jeering and mocking Jesus. Now, I know if you know the story of the two thieves, you'd think, well, that one did it and one did No, no, according to Matthew, is both were on board. They were both mocking and jeering Jesus, and, and I don't know how far they took it. I don't know if they were spitting at him as well or whatever it was, but they were a part of reviling, mocking, jeering, making fun of Jesus in this moment. And Matthew and Mark both support that. However, along the way, one of them, one of them took a, a little bit of a different direction. So let's look at the first thief. The first thief that talked to Jesus, what does he say? In, in, Matthew, or in Luke chapter 23, it says, One of the criminals hanging beside, beside Jesus scoffed. So you're the Messiah, huh? Okay. Lots of sarcasm. Whole lot of sarcasm, okay? Uh, so you're, you're the Messiah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, why don't you do this? Why don't you, why don't you prove it? Prove it, Jesus. Prove that you are who you say you are. And oh, by the way, um, if you do happen to have some power, why don't you save me uh, as well? Save yourself and save me if you, if you kind of think about it. See, this is exactly what the first thief was portraying. Like he just, he was so personally focused on himself. He was so, he was so interested in, in really the wrong thing rather than the right one that was sitting right next to him. I think Psalm 14:1 gives us a little insight on what's going on in this guy's heart. This is what it says. Only fools, only fools say in their hearts, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their actions are evil. And not one of them does good. Not one of them does good. Here's, here's this guy. He's at the end of his life. The end of his life. And he's maybe heard a lot of the stories. He hears the weeping and the sorrow. And yet he's up there. And even like at that end of the moment, kind of this life moment, you have an opportunity of someone standing next to you that could, even could be. I'm not saying that he is in your mind, but could be salvation for you. And yet, and yet this thief, this guy goes, uh-uh, uh-uh. He decides to use his final breaths to mock and jeer at Jesus. So you're the, the Messiah, huh? Okay, well, why don't you prove it? Now, it makes sense that maybe he's so cynical. It makes sense because at the end of the day, here's his perspective. He sees, he sees almost, not, not, not a Messiah, but he sees a failed Messiah. Hey, if you're a real Messiah, you wouldn't be on the cross with me. He sees maybe even a failed king. Because Jesus, weren't you supposed to rescue the Jews from the Roman oppression? Wasn't that part of the deal? Weren't you supposed to do that? All he saw was a failed Messiah, a failed king, a failed leader. In response to this, the man comes forward with such offensive words. 
angry, bitter, demanding God to prove himself. Does that sound like our world today? Does that sound like maybe you just dial up the news or you dial up people that are just angry and venomous towards, towards God? Hey, hey, if you're real, why don't you do something? See, you know why God gets blamed a lot? Because he's oftentimes the biggest target. He's just the biggest target in the room. It's just real easy. You know why? Because they have no way of categorizing and no way of dealing with their pain. So they look at the biggest guy in the room and go, your fault. If you really cared, do something. If you really loved, show me. Prove it to me. But see, the problem is, is they are so intrinsic. They are looking inwardly rather than upwardly in that moment. They're so focused on themselves that this, this thief that has the opportunity of actual, actual salvation chooses his own way and his own heart. And so here's what he offers God. God, I want freedom, but I ain't, I'm not needing forgiveness. He wants freedom without forgiveness. He actually wants benefits of Jesus without belief. Right? He wants escape from his problem. In his mind, he's thinking, if I could just get down off this cross, then everything will be fine at that point, and I'll navigate the rest of my life. How many of us walk in the church do the same thing? God, if you could just alleviate this problem I'm walking through, then, then everything will be fine. Everything will be great. And we want, we want the benefits of Jesus. So, so if you say this is what you are, then fine, show me. Give me the good stuff. I want the good stuff. Oh, you, no, you're not going to get my attention. You're, you're not going to get my loyalty. No, no, no. no. That, uh, I, I've got a schedule. I've got a thing with a guy at a place somewhere across town. You know what I'm saying? Like we, we offer all these excuses and, and we go these different directions. But, but if I can get a benefit, if I, can, if I can snag some freedom here and there, if I can alleviate my guilt, and this is what we mean when we say we, we walk through guilt management rather than find true repentance and forgiveness. Like we end up coming into church trying to manage our guilt because we really don't see ourselves for who we are. We see ourselves as professional mistakers rather than lifelong natural sinners. And if you see yourself as a mistake, then it's just a mistake. And our world loves that language. You've, off, you've made a mistake. And, and I don't need Jesus' forgiveness because what I'm doing is a mistake. It's not that much of a problem. But when you really look at your life, and you understand the choices that you've made. Make no mistake, everything about your life stands in complete contradiction and opposition to who God is. And you wonder why things are going bad. You wonder why you're at this place in your life where you never thought that you would be. This first thief, I want your freedom, but you're not going to get my forgiveness. See, Jesus is offering so much more. So much more. See, he, if he is someone that is seeking out to, and saving the lost, I seek and save the lost, even in this moment, Jesus wants this man, but yet this man doesn't want Jesus. He wants his way. The second thief, Luke seven thirty four says this, because I think this best defines our second thief on the cross. Jesus, a friend of tax collectors 
and sinners. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, uh, that, it was a common mockery that the religious people often applied towards Jesus. Oh, you're just a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus welcomed that. He's like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I am. It's exactly who I am. I am a friend of tax collectors and sinners and broken people and prostitutes and drunkards. I am a friend of the broken and the hurting. And this is why Luke makes such a huge emphasis. And on this dark day when Jesus is on the cross, he, in these last moments, is still proving he's a friend of sinners. One on his right, one on his left. Even in this moment, One of the things that we need to understand is that somewhere the thief, the thief, the other thief on his left, who was joining in the mocking, remember, somewhere from when he was mocking alongside his friend, jumping on the bandwagon, jeering, spitting, doing whatever he was doing, going along with the crowd, somewhere between here And when they put him on the cross, somewhere between here and there, something happened. Like something something shifted. Something something began to move. And it doesn't give us a whole lot of insight, but, but there was a change from here, Matthew telling us he's jumping in on this, to this moment he is on the cross Maybe it was he's reflecting on conversations that he had among his friends during that day talking about Jesus. Maybe it was certain seeds that were planted all those years ago, hearing and, and maybe seeing, seeing those, those miracles and, and whatever it was, and him just turning a blind eye, never wanting it, walking away, walking away. Or maybe, maybe it was what I think it is. Maybe it was this this man hanging on this cross and all of a sudden he sees Jesus face to face and his eyes catch him and then something in him just melts. All that hardness, all that stubbornness, all that brokenness, all of a sudden it just it just dissipates. And I can't give you all of the academic reasons or the knowledge reasons of why it made sense. But in that moment, in that moment, this thief, regardless of what brought him to this point, this criminal, this thief, this sinner, is rethinking his entire life in response to Jesus' life and character on the cross. See, something happened. And maybe he can't even conjure it up in words in this moment or whatever. But whatever happened, he was looking at Jesus significantly different than the guy that's on the other side of Jesus. And he's looking at Jesus and he just melts. And he's broken. And he turns and he engages in this conversation with Jesus that we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. In Luke verses 23, through 42 it says this it says the man turned to the other criminal the other criminal protested don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced 
to die. So he turns to his, maybe it's his buddy, maybe it's his, his partner in crime, whoever that was. He's looking at him, he's going, you're about to die. Like, do you get that? Do you not even fear God in this moment? And basically, ultimately, what, he is, what he's saying to this guy is he's saying, is there nothing that you can bring Is there nothing you can bring in this moment that can offer humility? Is there nothing in this moment that you can can find in this moment that would bring conviction? Don't you fear God? But But then he takes his eyes off his friend and he turns to Jesus and he says two words. Jesus, would you, would you remember me? Would you, would you remember me? Now, when you first hear those words, your first thought would be like, God, would you just kind of have a thought of me as you go off into your last breath in eternity? Would you, would you hold a thought of me? Would you just, like, like the word says, remember me? But actually what he's saying is something significantly more. See, when you remember this term, this was a very common word, a common phrase in the Old Testament. As you walk through the Old Testament, these two words, remember me, actually refer to what God does to his children in the, in, uh, in the Old Testament. So for example, God, it says, God remembered Noah. And in doing so, he rescued Noah and his family. It says that God remembered Abraham and spared the life of Lot. It says that God remembered Rachel and therefore opened her womb so that the covenant could, could uh, be followed through on. Like, like God remembered. So when God remembered, it actually means that God delivered. God moved. God saved. God did that which you can't. God rescued. God offered a miracle. This is what it means when it says that God remembered. So in this moment, this man on the cross, living out his final breaths, turns to Jesus, and what he's ultimately saying, more than just remember me, he's saying, God, God, Would you deliver me from death? Deliver me from eternal destruction. He's saying, rescue me. Like, I need you. Like, I don't don't have a church background. I don't don't have all these things. Would Would you rescue me? Would you deliver me? This is what this man is crying out here in this moment. And you can imagine, look, I mean, the eyes that Jesus has towards this man. Compassion. Love just full in his heart towards this man. And what was Jesus' response? We look at verse three, and that very first word, he says, assuredly, I say. He goes on to say, I assure you, I assure you, in a world where we only can offer warranties, God gives a guarantee, and he gives a guarantee that today, And I just want to look at that word for a second, today. What does he mean today? See, the question arises when someone dies is what happens then, right? Isn't that the question? Like, what happens now? Where do do I go? I mean, the moment I offer my last breath, there's different faiths and there's different beliefs all around the world of what happens next. Well, according to what the Bible teaches us, he's looking at this man 
And he's setting theology and doctrine in order. And he's saying, not sometime in the future, not sometime after certain events take place, but today, today, right now, this is going to happen. So the as I read that, and the only way that I can look at that is, is it doesn't point to any of these other things. He's saying, and the only way that you can look at this particular word is that after your breath, breathe your last, this is happening. See, 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us, absent from the body is present with the Lord. Paul reinforces that through Philippians that when I die, I am with God. I am with Christ. This is constantly taught throughout Scripture, which means there's no holding ground after death. There's no purgatory. There's nothing that waits for us on the other side as a holding place. God goes, death with me. Death with me. This is what Jesus promises. And don't, don't look at, this is not my, this is the Bible, this is what God's word is saying. Today, you, right there, you don't have to wait, you don't have to earn something else, no one has to pray you out of anything, today, you're with me. Because this is the very next statement he goes on to. He says, Luke 23, 43, he says, today, you will be with me. See, the high point of this entire passage of all these verses, is this statement right here. You will be with me. He's not just focusing on when it's going to happen. He's focusing on what will happen. You know what life and eternity will be, regardless of what you think about heaven, regardless of what you think that future holds. The greatest thing about heaven and the greatest gift about heaven is not about a place. It's about a person. You get Jesus for eternity. This is heaven. I mean, you get to, uh, and you're like, I mean, I, I've talked to my kids before, and they're like, Dad, won't it be boring? I'm going, okay, all right, we need to talk, all right? Um, if there is something that you can never get to the bottom to, bottom of, if you can never experience the end of love, if you can never experience the end of joy, the end of hope, the end of, the, and that presence that embodies all of that is in front of you, how deep can you fall in the well and never come to the bottom? And, God, and they're like, well, eternity. I'm like, isn't that heaven? You fall for eternity in the arms of our Savior. And you get more of love and more joy and more hope and more peace than you could ever possibly imagine. So despite the, the streets of gold, despite all those things that, that we like to think heaven is, heaven is the dwelling place of the one that you've always meant to be with, which is your creator and savior, Jesus Christ. This is our heaven. Now notice, notice something. Let me, let me bring something to your attention. Notice that Jesus, while he's on the cross and he's interacting in this beautiful moment with this, with this thief, notice he didn't turn and, and the thief goes, hey, remember me. And Jesus turns and looks and says, what do you think about the Trinity? You know, like he doesn't ask him a theological question. Hey, what's your view? Before we can do this, hang on, time out. Uh, what do you think about inerrancy and the Bible? Like, what, help, help me in. He doesn't ask him that. 
He doesn't, he doesn't go in and, and say, hey, do you believe I'm fully God and fully man? Do you believe that? He doesn't ask this guy this thing. This guy knows nothing about nothing. He doesn't say how much, hey, listen, how much money did you give to the poor? Because I don't know if I can. He doesn't say any of those things. And he also doesn't say, you've been baptized yet? He doesn't say that. He says, no, today, you will be with me. You will be with me. What Jesus saw was a man, a broken, sinful man, doing nothing more than reaching out to the Savior. That's it. No theological background, no doctrinal background, not having all the knowledge of what, what people that attend church regularly might might find, doesn't have any of that. All he came with was nothing more than his neediness and his sin. That's it. And he came to Jesus saying, I just, this is all I got. See, don't, don't you understand yet? Like, you need to grab hold of this. Like, we bring Nothing to the table of grace but our brokenness and our sinfulness and our lostness. And that's exactly what Jesus wants. He wants that from you. See, stop going, I got to get my life together, then I'll come to Jesus. It doesn't work like that. You go to Jesus in order to get your life together. It's always been like that. That's always been the plan. He's always said, I, I will do in you what you can't do. I will transform you. We value life transformation here. And it always starts in a relationship with Jesus. Always. And you know what? Ultimately, we, I, even as a pastor and all the other pastors on staff and whatever else, we cannot fix you. I can't fix you. Any other pastor, any other minister on this staff cannot fix you. We offer you the one hope that we have, which is a bigger picture of Jesus who can do more in you than we ever could. This is what life transformation is, and it takes our entire life until we see our Savior face to face. See, the very best that we bring to the table is kind of like that little boy. Remember that little boy that came when the feeding of the 5,000, what did that little boy offer? He offered loaves of stale bread and a couple fish. Do you realize that's the best that we can offer? Like if we're offering anything, I got some stale bread and some fish. It's all I got. And Jesus goes, yep, it's all I need. I can do more with that. It's exactly what I want. I... Um, I was trying to think of a, different, a number of different ways in order to, to better illustrate this point. And, and I don't think there's a better way than, than to share with you a letter that my son Boaz had shared with me. Um, it was unsolicited. Michelle and I were out of town, and this was a while back. And, and, uh, and he decided to write his dad a letter. So... Um, so I believe that it speaks to what, what we actually offer the Lord and what he gets from us when we do. So let me read this letter to you as it, as it reads. 
This is a letter from Boaz. He says, God thinks as us as a painting or a panting. <laughs> he pants us in his way. That's way is good. But if you turn from him, that's bad. Do what God calls you to do. I know times might get tough. But if you have God, nothing is impossible. Dad, can you use this? And you can change it if you want. So I asked him a little bit later, and he said, Dad, I just thought that God told me to do that. Now, I want, I want you to notice, like, up and down, like, there's all kinds of mistakes, right? Like, there's massive misspelled words. There's misused words. There is there's broken sentences. There's... It's just like this jumbled mess. And you know, anyone looking from the outside that would see that, they would see it as just a piece of junk. But when my son gave his dad this letter, it was the most beautiful thing this dad could ever get. It was so valuable, so important. It was the, most, it was the best letter I ever got. You know why? Because it was from my boy. And I think, I think this is kind of how we come to God. And we come and this thief on the cross is coming to God. Like there's everything about our life is misspelled words and, and missing words and grammar problems and it's just this jumbled, sinful mess full of mistakes, full of problems. But like this father was towards his son, our heavenly father, Jesus Christ, in this moment looking at this thief on the cross going, that's the most beautiful thing I can get from you. Just you just your broken self. Like, this is all I want. This is all that I need. And see, he, in that moment, he said, today you will be with me. And I want to close on this last word, in paradise. This word paradise, it's actually a transliterated Persian word that refers in that day and age, to the king's garden. You know that? Paradise is referring to the king's garden. And if you knew about anything about the king's garden during that time, is they, they were sacred, kind of holy places only allowed for the king. The king would go into the garden. It was this most intimate part of the realm. And they would have the most beautiful flowers and the most beautiful um, displays of, of fountains and waters. And, and they'd have maybe animals and all kinds of stuff. And it was this beautiful garden. 
And so Jesus on this cross as he turns, looking at this broken man with all compassion, offering nothing but his broken self, he's saying, God, Jesus, would you remember me? Would you, would you deliver me? And Jesus in this moment says, I assure you today, today, you will be with me in the king's garden. That's what he's saying. And isn't that appropriate? How our first parents, they were kicked out of the garden and the very first person, the very first person was the most likely person invited back into the garden was this thief on the cross. I don't know where you are right now. I don't know which thief that you would be, but isn't that the question? Because we're all, we're all broken, we're all thieves. And you can come and you can continue to fight for the benefits that Jesus offers, or you can surrender everything and just lean into the Savior despite your background and just say, Jesus, would you remember me? And Jesus is gonna say unequivocally with all 100% confidence, today you're gonna be with me in the King's garden. This is what's in store for us for those that turn our hearts towards Jesus. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? I just, would you do, I just want to pray for you. Maybe some of you this don't know why you came in this morning. Maybe you were thinking of just trying to feel better. And can I just say right now, Jesus wants to make you better. He wants to transform you. And it starts by surrendering to him. It starts by following him for the rest of your life and just laying all your brokenness before him, all the sin that has defied him. And you just cry out to the Savior saying, Jesus, just remember me. If that's you this morning, would you do me a favor? I just wanna, you're honest. I just want you to be honest. No one's looking around, but if that's you this morning, would you do me a favor? I just wanna pray for you. If that's you, would you just kind of slip your hand up? You put it right back down, but if... Hey, I need to know this Savior. I need to be changed. I need to be transformed. I need to know I'm in the garden. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Man, thanks. I don't want to miss anyone. Thank you. Just be honest between you and the Lord. We're all thieves on the cross, but which one are you? Thank you. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, for those that maybe lifted their hands or, no, or those hands that I didn't even see, I want to invite you into this moment right now. You're actually one of the thieves on the cross. And all you need to do is you need to turn and you need to look at the Savior who's looking at you right now with such love and compassion in this moment. And I'm going to invite you to speak these words to him. Because you're not talking to me, you're talking to a Savior. The Savior who died on your behalf, who was buried in a tomb on your behalf, who rose again because he's God on your behalf so that you could be brought back into the king's garden. So right now in this moment, if you want to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you can say this prayer out loud or silent in your heart by saying this, Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm lost. 
I've lived my own life. I'm broken. Would you remember me? Jesus, would you save me? I'm tired of doing it my way. I'm ready to do it yours. I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried in a tomb for me. And I believe you rose again, setting me free and inviting me home. Jesus, I pray right now for every person that made that, that just committed to you in this moment. Right now, the message that they need to know and they need to believe is that today you will be with me in the king's garden. That no matter what life has to offer, no matter how many hardships, this is not the end. This is only the beginning. And you have life everlasting with a Savior who loves them. Jesus, would we live like we're saved? God, I pray for those that are here that maybe continue to play this church game and back and forth. God, would you change us as the church, the people of God, that we would rise up and once again live a life called by you. Jesus, you gave us everything on the cross. How can we not give you the same? Jesus, thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for changing us. Thank you for making us whole. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name.